Well, good morning. Uh, as we were evaluating and thinking about this, we were trying to think, okay, do we use the small group curriculum or do we do the preaching curriculum, you know? And uh, it's both the same. Uh, <laughs> but we did, uh, we, we are excited to be able to share with you and spend some time with you this morning. And uh, as we were kind of thinking through this, uh, you know, it seems like uh, in almost every situation, whether it's in the church or out of the church, uh, it's, it's hard to talk about sexuality without covering it with humor and uh, bringing that sense of humor to, uh, to the table. And so we thought this one would be a good one. You might not be able to read it, but uh, he's standing there in an apron and all the uh, cleaning uh, paraphernalia. And it says, don't you have any other sexual fantasies that don't involve me cleaning? <laughs> Ladies, you can use uh, that The funniest part one. of this is that this was a, on a birthday card my oldest son gave me for my birthday. And my first thought was, well, he feels close enough and comfortable enough to, s to open this door with me. But then the next thought is like, why did he pick this card? <laughs> when I think about the, the, some of the earliest stages of hearing communication about bibl biblical sexuality for me, I realized this morning it was actually in this room. This, was, this is where the high school ministry met back in the last century. And, uh, and, and I, I can remember hearing message after message as a high schooler in this room. But you know what? The only thing that I can remember for the most part are the jokes that the guys made. The content slipped by me. Uh, and, and again, I think uh, the, the, the major message was uh, it wasn't quite sex is dirty, save it for someone you love. But it was along that lines that just said, hey, uh, everything that you can do, don't have sex before you get married. That message got through to me. But I'll tell you what, it was sure covered in a lot of jokes and often, unfortunately, maybe more crash than, uh, than they should have been. For us, we kind of cut our teeth on, uh, on ministry back in the Jesus Revolution, uh, back in a time when this idea of, of really what it meant to be relevant and what it meant to be biblical was tested uh, for the first time really in the 20th century at a, at a really tough place. For, and, and our generation was in the middle of it. And so for us to kind of think through that, it became very, very important uh, to, to really come back to it now where the culture has shifted into this idea of post-Christian and beyond. So. Mm -hmm. so the talk today is so raw and vulnerable and out there that a lot of times we just like wall it out. It's like I, I can't take any more of that. And for us as Christians, sex is sacred. It's holy ground. And for many of us, we're healing from sexual uh, escapades in our past that we are trying to find forgiveness and, and trying to clean that out of our, our uh, tapes that are in our head. And that is definitely where our people are. Uh, daily, we meet with people. This is their issue. Um, and so we want to look at sex from, from God's perspective, as you always do, I'm sure. But from Song of Solomon, um, we're going to pull some verses out. But as you have read that, you have experienced that it is very erotic. It is very clear. And as Christians, as the church, we have not been so clear as the Bible is about sex. And part of that is because the culture was pressing in on us, and so we're trying to keep it at bay. So we only talk about the prohibitions. And we don't talk about the beauty. 
it's hard to talk about the beauty without not letting, you know, encouraging people to, to drink of that well. But it's also important that we talk about the beauty. We have a friend who, uh, just before we were uh, getting married, he said, uh, and we were talking to him about our premarital uh, counseling, he said, you know what, the last step of premarital counseling is talking about sexuality because with a young couple, once they know the rules, they want to play the game. And unfortunately, uh, the, the rules have been, uh, the rule book has been opened by the culture, and it's not our rule book. And the Jewish young men were not even allowed to read Song of Songs until they were of age because it was so erotic and so sacred. Uh, we love this quote by uh, Shannon Etheridge. She's a, a MFT, I think, is yes. in Dallas area. And um, if Christian couples cannot have phenomenal sex lives, given the personal spiritual connection they have with the author and originator of sex, then who can? Well, last night I mentioned it just in passing, but we never thought of this verse in context of sexuality, and that's Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. That's our goal for this morning, mm -hmm. to stimulate you to love and good works, both in your own personal sexual relationship, but also as you communicate to your flock, as you communicate the, these ideas of what God has in mind for us. So what we want to do is set a, a little bit of the context. We're going to look a little bit at 1 Corinthians 7. And in the context of that, the Apostle Paul opens himself to an online question and answer session with the Corinthians. And he's, it, it was by, by mail uh, along the Appian Way uh, in the Roman Empire rather than the Internet, but it was still kind of an online question and answer. And, and if you have studied those books and looked through those, you understand that, that well, they say that there may have been three books, uh, an intervening book between First and Second Corinthians, but in those, Paul is answering questions that the church has written and asked him. And, and as he looks at that, the, the, the Corinthian Christians are asking questions about their new faith in regards to the secular culture in which they live and looking for answers of what does it mean like to be truly, genuinely uh, apprentices of Jesus as they followed him uh, in the teaching that Paul gave to them and how to integrate everyday Christian living in Corinth as Christians, including marriage and sexuality. It was like this uh, in the, the, the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes this, now concerning the things about which you wrote me. That's the answer. He's, he's going, hey, I, I want to tell you. And then he, this quote here, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. I mean, that's been kind of debated back and forth. And I think some of the most recent uh, study in the, in the New Testament talks about this as being really a phrase that has come out of the Corinthian culture, out of the secular culture, part of the of what the uh, the water that they swim in, the the mindset of what they experience, the the Gnostic heresy that was part of the the Corinthian culture and the culture of that day, the idea that that matter is evil and the spirit is good, therefore stay away from that which is physical, including sexuality, including sexuality in your marriage. So this Gnostic view uh, begin to influence, or well, no, we should not say begin to influence had been the water that the Corinthians were swimming in, what they lived in, and then when they come to faith, they begin hearing this new message of sexuality, this new message of, of the, the holistic idea of the human experience and what we were created to be. And so the, when they begin to look at this conflicted message, they begin to wonder what they should do, and so they write to Paul and they ask him, 
And it's really here at this link that the uh, Corinthian Christians and the Californian Christians almost could be interchangeable terms. Uh, a phrase that, uh, that comes to mind for us is this idea of their newly found developing Christian worldview about marital sex had been more influenced by the culture than by the teaching of Scripture. As I said, this is where the interchange between the Corinthian Christians and the California Christians are true. Let me repeat that. The newly, newly found and developing Christian worldview about marital sex was more influenced by the culture than the teaching of Scripture. Could that be true about California Christians? Could that be true about the people in our churches? Could it be true about us who lead the church who sit at this conference at Hume Lake? I want to take just a couple of minutes and hear from you, uh, and, and let's just brainstorm a little bit. What are some of the, uh, the phrases and philosophies that influence your congregation, that influence your children and grandchildren, and influence your staff? What are some of the, the phrases that come out of the culture that relate to sexuality and its application and living, living true in this culture? What are some of those phrases and philosophies? Love is love. Yeah. My body, my choice, which is, which really jumps right into the middle of human sexuality. Yeah. What else? Yeah, yeah. Radical individualism, bringing it down, and emotionalism, bringing it down into that category. What about it's just sex? So many of these things come into our culture, and, and they're, they're phrases, and, and it's easy to just pass them off as phrases, but the truth is they're philosophies. Philosophies that go deep to the heart. The idea that it's just sex, it's just casual. Friends with benefits. The hookup culture. I mean, we, we listened to some studies and looked at some studies recently that talk about the fact for the, uh, on, on the college campus and in, and in the young professionals, the idea is let's go out, uh, let's be friends, but let's go out and let's get inebriated and then let's enjoy each other's body and then the next morning let's be friends again and act like last night never happened. The hookup culture becomes part, in, part of that. The, the idea that hedonistic pleasure trumps morality, pleasure over purpose. The idea that uh, even the equal rights movement, and some of these things have, have some validity in themselves. The equal rights movement has great validity. But at the same time, the equal rights movement has given us that, uh, come back to that idea of the radical individual, my rights over your rights, my rights trump your rights. As we continue thinking through that a little bit and, and, and look at the idea of, uh, of cohabitation, what cohabitation has done. 80%, 80% of couples that marry will have lived together before they marry. That's true in your church as well. When we do, pre, we do a lot of premarital counseling. Years ago, we would ask a couple in the middle or the beginning of premarital counseling, we would say, hey, every couple who are in love with each other have a desire to express their love to each other physically. How have you expressed your love to each other physically? And the few who, would, uh, who have been already involved in premarital sex would drop their head and then say, yeah, we're, we've, we've been having sex. Today, we they ask that question. They lead with it. They lead with it now. They lead with the idea that we're already sleeping together, if not living together. And so that, I mean, if, if 
that alone is a question for us as church leaders to evaluate what is going on. I think the, the last one, and, and uh, it, it's right here, and that's since of where and what modern contraception has done. It has taken away the responsibility of sexuality. The idea that, uh, that is true that every sexual act, every, every act of intercourse has the potential of producing a human made in the image of God. When we look at these things, uh, uh, what pops into our minds so quickly is Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I guess the question is, what does the uh, framework for sex and marriage, where does your framework for sex and marriage come from? Where does it come from for your congregation? Where does it come from for your kids and grandkids? And so, um, as Kurt said, we've been swimming in this water for quite a while. Uh, this quote is over 40 years old by Rollo May. Isn't it strange, a strange thing, how society, how in our society, the things which go into a relationship, the sharing of ideas, fantasies, dreams, hopes, and, and fears seem to make people more shy and vulnerable than going to bed with each other does. They are more wary of the tenderness that goes into psychological and spiritual nakedness than into physical nakedness in the sexual experience. Um, we agree. The biblical view is a man and a woman created in the image of God are to reveal the complex nature of the triune God in their coming together in marriage. One man, one woman. The community of the two of you reveals the community of the three in one. Our sexuality as a couple is spiritual as much as it is physical. And our society, another piece of this, this uh, society uh, culture that has come into our thinking is we separate this. We're compartmentalized. We're not used to thinking of God and our sexuality in proximity. But that's what God intended. He intended that we would think of the whole of our person. Our sexuality is not something he doesn't want to know about. It's not something he doesn't want to see. It's something he created, and it's something he wants to flourish in our, our marriages. The reason why, as Kurt just said, we don't like to bring these two things together is because it requires responsibility. And our society is all about push the, the responsibility away, seek the pleasure, go for what is good for you. Uh, do you. Don't worry about anybody else. <laughs> that idea of bringing together both the spirit and the body, bringing together the material and the immaterial part of who we are, that we are holistic even in our sexuality. Years ago, I wrote uh, just a little card and poem to Rhonda in which I said, why do they call it making love? Uh, making love is what I do when I look into your eyes. Making love is what I do when I'm away from you and I think about you. Making love is what it is to just touch your hand. Making love. And it goes on and on to the idea that this holistic experience, that sex and, and this, the relationship between a woman and a man in marriage and this seeking of union is this beautiful interaction sexually relating to each other that is climax and orgasm. But that's not 
that's not the whole image. There's so much more to it. And our, we have focused for our teaching with our children, with our youth, uh, with our families, and that idea that says, listen, just stay away from orgasm. Just stay away from intercourse. And so what they have done is they said, so what is sex? How close can we get to intercourse, even orgasm, but how close if we're not, if there's no penetration, is it okay? Because they have tested everything that we have gone to and every way that we have taken them. And so to help us understand that idea that, that as the whole person comes together, the, the whole person, the idea that when a, a woman's spirit and a man's spirit comes together, in every way, not just in intercourse and orgasm, but in looking into each other's eyes, into sharing together in raising a family and sharing together in ministry, that that is the unity that we're speaking about. And the idea of sexuality compared to that is uh, down in the bottom left-hand corner is like a 4th of July sparkler compared to the Disneyland fireworks. This is what it looks like when the whole person, man and woman, come together. The other is just a little sparkler that, uh, that is distracting us from the big show. I wanted to include this uh, quote from uh, C.S. Lewis that I think just describes it so well. We are half-hearted creatures like ignorant children who want to go on playing, making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. So beautiful. Understanding and pursuing God's design for all that sex was meant to be is opening the door to intimacy that only hints at the physical, in the uh, physical expression. Um, it is beautiful and it is a, a mysterious dance. The relationship in marriage is to be protected because it's so powerful and it's so much the deepest part of us. And yet we are treating it so casually until we hit rock bottom and we realize we've given away something so precious. How do we get it back? Um, the beautiful display in, in all of creation. We can all talk about sunsets we've seen. We just got back from Ireland. The green that you'll never forget in Ireland. All the things that God has created. This is one that he, uh, Solomon talks about. It's, it's so in, in, incredible. In, in Proverbs 30, 18 and 19, there are three things that are so amazing to me. Four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a snake on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of a man with a woman. <laughs> I love that from Solomon. There's three things. Three things that are amazing. And there's another one that's amazing, and I don't get it, and that is the way of a man with a maid. That's such a beautiful statement. And yet God protects that in the, in the idea of what marriage is, that he has reserved that sexual relationship. Not the idea of our sexuality, be, sexuality, but that idea of the sexual relationship of a man and woman coming together intimately, intimately in the idea of marriage, that God... Sex in God's design is protected in exclusivity, that God draws us together. The fact that, that what we are sharing with each other, as Rhonda said, is such a beautiful thing, such a fragile thing, that that sense of commitment is necessary. It is that idea of commitment that, that opens the door to be naked and unashamed. Because the truth is, what, what we are all yearning for is to be restored to the Garden of Eden, 
to where God designed human relationships to flourish, where the man and woman could live naked and unashamed. For a couple to enter into the sexual relationship, even from the, clo- the, the closeness of, of, of beginning to share ideas and look into each other's eyes and, that, and then to share sexually with each other into the area of intercourse and to be that naked and that vulnerable outside of a committed relationship is insanity. And God has protected that by placing the marriage covenant, the vows, as the place that we begin. Uh, you're familiar with a passage from Proverbs 5, drink water from your own well. So this is the, uh, uh, the, the old, uh, old Testament culture village. How many have been to Israel? You've seen the cisterns, the wells that have dug there, <laughs> the common locations that the whole community would go to gather their water. This is the well. This is the cistern that he's talking about. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill your water out of the springs into the street having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with anyone. Let your wife be the fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is like a loving deer, a peace, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. So we agree in this room that God doesn't do anything without intention and great purpose. And so there are three purposes of sex, and um, our society has ran hog wild with one of them, (laughs) and the other two have been ignored. Uh, But the first is be fruitful and multiply. He says in Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve and to every generation after. Uh, Become one flesh in Genesis 2.24 is a second purpose, unity, to reflect the unity of the triune God. So the idea of procreation is, uh, is an area that uh, is so significantly important and has been set aside by science in the last uh, 70 years. The idea that the pill enters into the picture and the idea that uh, procreation, responsibility, can be set aside. Uh, the, the biological drive for reproduction, procreation, the reproduction of legacy and reproduction of the species. God's design was to bring an awareness of the procreative act, the very nature that God has allowed us being made in his image to be co-creators with him. That when a man and woman come together and have sex, that the potential of that is, is the development of their, uh, the, between their bodies producing one. And the man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Most of the time we pass over that in a wedding ceremony with, with just casualness. That be, we've become so familiar with it, but that idea of one flesh is, is back to that idea of unity, but it, even more than that, it is the physical truth that out of that union comes a child. Out of that union comes one that, uh, that will live for all eternity. If we were to enter into sexual relationship, even our own relationship, regardless of where we are in the seasons of life, premarital, early marriage, midlife, aging marriage, and to that place that we recognize that every time that we have sex, the potential 
was created in our sexual union that a child would be born. Even if you are beyond childbearing age, that idea brings you back to the sense of what God created sex for in the beginning. To bring union to you, but also the potentiality of the legacy and to reflect on that and to reflect what the future could be and what that has for you. So, yes, do we discourage birth control? No. <laughs> That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is that don't lose that. Um, we all know couples that ha have struggled to have children, and it's arduous. And we sit with them, and we, we hear their grief in that, and we grieve with them. And then we know couples that, you know, can't look at each other sideways without getting pregnant. We have friends that have eight children, and that's with a vasectomy in the middle of it, you know. So, I mean, we, we come to the conclusion we are not ultimately in control, and that's where God wants us. We're not in control. We have these little ways that we can push things one way or another, but God is ultimately in control. Second purpose that God designed for sex is the idea of union. Uh, as evangelicals, uh, we believe that, but we sure don't believe it like our Catholic brothers and sisters do because we're, we're a little bit afraid of the idea of making marriage a sacrament. And yet we come to the edge of that when we talk about the sense of the union that comes together when a man and woman, where the man's body enters into the woman's body and she receives him in the, in the sacredness of commitment, and they become one flesh. Powerful, powerful statement. When we go back to the idea that uh, that, that is the coming from Genesis 2.24, that a man shall leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the beginning of that starts like this. For this cause... The representation of what is happening in this relationship in our total whole person connection with each other and through our sexuality is the idea that we are icons of the triune God in the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The sense that we are imaging not just that God is, is a God of morality, volition, social, mental, but God has this relational nature, the idea that God is love. God has been in a love relationship for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I love the, the, the uh, historic uh, Christian theolog theological idea of uh, perichoresis. Perichoresis was a term that was used in the, uh, the idea of the Trinity. Perichoresis comes from uh, para, peri, Greek scholars, around and together. And the, and the choresis is the idea of where we get the word choreography. It is the idea of the dance of the Trinity, that the Trinity enters into these individual, distinct individuals, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are in this relationship, and this is relationship as they are relating with each other in love, as they are relating to each other in all of what life is for the Trinity. It's the, like this inner moving of the most beautiful dance that you have ever seen. If you've ever watched a dance and, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's almost as though they are synchronized to the place that they are almost like one. No, not for the Trinity. Not like they are like one, but they are one. Isn't that interesting? Even in our relationship, that we, when we become one, that we think that we spend the rest of our lives that we are trying to become unified, that we are working for unity. The truth of the matter is that that's a, like it is in the Trinity. It's an ontological statement. It's not work harder 
to become one. It is the fact that you are one. Live as though who you are. When that term also is used when it talks about the unity of the church, the same thing is true. It's an ontological statement. It's not that we work to become one. It's that we are one. Live like it. Our sexuality is as individual as our fingerprints. Uh, and that's so obvious in our relationship, isn't it? Uh, and this helps us, I think, if we grab a hold of that, to not be judgmental about our, our, our partner's aggressiveness towards wanting more sex or the partner coming the other direction. Why, why can't a, man be more, a woman be more like a man kind of thing? We can understand that, that we are different and we have different fingerprints. Uh, I love a quote by G.K. Chesterton, He's, and he was talking about the sacred romance when he, he uh, offered this, but he said uh, this, the romance is really uh, a sense of wonder and welcome. That is how it is. We came to Christ, isn't it? We, we wondered, you know, about creation. We wondered about this hole in our hearts. Who's going to fill it? And God answered that. And we wondered and wondered, and he welcomed us into his family. And that's the way we met, too, isn't it? You and your partner. He met that guy, or he met that girl. Wow, I really like that about him. The thing I loved about Kurt was that uh, we worked together, and I loved his work ethic. I know that doesn't sound very romantic, but I was looking for that. <laughs> um, I loved how he wanted to build into young men and did that. You know, all of those things became part of the romance, the, the wonder that led to the welcome of welcoming one another in, into each other's lives. But that's also the, the act of us coming together sexually, the wonder and the welcome. We wonder... So different, <laughs> but welcomed. Same here, going the, my direction. The very fact of that, even uh, to be as graphic as we often are not and maybe should be, and that is the idea of the, the penetration of the man being, being welcomed by the woman as their spirits welcome and mingle together becomes this incredible picture. So let's talk about a few of the biological reasons that exist because that kind of helps us uh, grab a hold of it. The sex-related centers in a man's brain are twice as large as those of a woman. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> that might be why uh, the keys in the wallet are lost a lot, you know, maybe. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The sex-related centers in a man's brain are twice as large as those in a woman. Secondly, Testosterone is the hormone responsible for fueling sexual thoughts, and the male body produces 10 to 100 times more than a woman. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> and it also shows that God intended balance. It's not one way or the other. He intended balance. And when stress levels are high, a man responds by wanting sex. Mm, it's not the case for a woman. We produce another hormone during stressful times. It's cortisol. And cortisol actually puts a damper on sexual thoughts or even wanting to be touched. You might have experienced that, too. <laughs> let, me, let, me, uh, let me out some of, uh, some of the gentlemen, if not all of the gentlemen in the room, at, at least myself. And that is the idea that, ladies, for you to know that when we are under stress uh, and often when we reach out for sex, 
it's not so much the idea of the sexual act that we are looking for, but we are looking for comfort. We are looking to be welcomed into your heart as much as we are to be welcomed into your body. And sometimes as guys, we are, uh, we're mistaken by that thought even in ourselves, and we're not, not even aware of it until we get to that place that we're just being held by you, and we're finding that sense of being welcomed in your heart becomes so very, very powerful for us. So for a woman, she likes to have her physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs met before that pilot gets started. Check, check, <laughs> check, check. Unfortunately, it's very true. Uh, I remember when we were first, in our first early years of ministry and, and family, uh, we had a very small house. And so I like things to be neat. So when people were coming over, I'd put the ironing board. People used to iron, okay? Some of you don't even know what that is. But people used to iron everything. And we lived in Dallas, and so you needed to iron in Dallas. So I don't know if people probably don't do it anymore. But I, my ironing pile would just get really high because I had no time. And... And so it would get stuck in the bedroom. <laughs> One time, Kurt was like suggesting we have some intimacy, and I said, "I can't make love. Look at that ironing pile." <laughs> There's another. There and was he another. got up and he took the ironing board and he threw it out into the patio, and it was like, "Okay, yeah, I see how ridiculous that is." Check, 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 <laughs> check. Okay, and then body image for us women is is huge. The, the, the culture is not kind to us, but we have to combat it. We can't succumb to it because it, it is the, the arrows of the enemy to destroy this unity that we're talking about. So my motto is be your best, do your best, and love what you have. You are the only one that can answer that question inside of you. Kurt can say all kinds of very sweet things to me. But unless I answer that question myself, it goes in one ear and out the other. It's my responsibility. <coughs> so get off of that, you know, rabbit trail of thinking about uh, saying those negative things over yourself, speaking lies over yourself, because they are lies. They are things from the, the pit that are meant to divide you. Um, Two mature people who are fully committed to each other in, uh, for their lifetime will make a priority to learn both the art of making love and the art of making love last. We meet with a lot of midlife couples, past midlife, that have given up on their sexual experience with one another. One of the things that we have to talk about is it changes you know, Kurt has all these spots on him. I had these gloves on because we've been to the dermatologist. And <laughs> this is what happens when you're 70. You know, you have these things that just go wrong. And they can't be derailing you from what you do still have. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still so much comfort to be experienced from the sexual relationship. I've got to say, I've got to say, at 70 years old, having been married now 46 years, we have the best sex that we have ever had in our relationship, and a lot of that is a lot of that is maturity, a lot of that is experience, a lot of that is learning each other, a lot of that is an awareness. But I'll tell you what: don't think 
Don't think that uh, you get to the place. Well, that's one of the things that's happening in the culture today as well. Even the idea of entering into marriage. Let's have all of our sex before marriage because we're not seeing anybody in marriage who has great sex. I'll tell you what, as a pastor, as a leader in your church, you don't need to be flaunting your sexuality, but you need to be imaging the image of God and the intimacy that exists and was created for your marriage. There needs to be a model. There needs to be something that says sex in marriage is so much better than sex before marriage. And so we need to understand desiring. For a man, it is. He, he wants more sex. Uh, that's just the way it is, fact of the matter. But a woman is looking for romance. And often we think those are so far apart that where, when will the twain meet? Um, but ultimately, as Kurt has been saying, we're looking for the same thing. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for affirmation. We're looking for comfort. We're looking for security. Two different flavors of ice cream, but they're both ice cream. <laughs> and so remember that as you come to these places that it seems like, oh, that's so foreign to me. And yet he is seeking the same thing I am seeking. I'm going to pick this up right here while you pull up that quote on your, uh, on your right. phone. As we continue, as it gets a little bit further into uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, I want you to be free from concern. He says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord exclusively. There's no other concern if you're a single person but how to please the Lord, how he may please the Lord, she may please the Lord, but the one who is married has another concern about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, how she may please her husband, and our interests are divided. The idea that, uh, that there is only one legitimate distraction between my relationship with the Lord and me, and that is this lady here. It's a legitimate distraction. I need to be careful with it. I need to be responsible with it. But I need to fulfill her need as she fulfills mine. This is my only acceptable distraction. And we need to cherish that. It can't just be a duty. We need to cherish it and nurture it. Okay, this quote is, is powerful. So put on your your good listening ears. It's from um, a, a counselor that we have listened to. She's not a believer. She has some great stuff, but we can't sign on to her, so we're not going to give you her name <laughs> unless you want to talk to us privately, but we will. We just don't want it on the tape. Okay. <laughs> um, so the sexual relationship is dependent on the leaning in and the leaning on connection in a couple. If I think you will crumble on me, I won't give myself to you. I won't lean on you. That you can let go and let someone else hold you up is life-changing. Conveying to the other, I want you, not, I want you, not I can't live without you. I'm here for you, not I need you. The trust of leaning in and leaning on between two people is foundational to the sexual relationship. It is the making, uh, making and taking risks that builds trust. Don't ask, why don't you give me an opportunity to be trusted and hold, up, hold you up? Rather, why don't you take the risk to make yourself available to catch your mate? Isn't that good? Yeah, let me demonstrate <laughs> that for you, the idea of leaning in. So if we are both trying to figure out the, the, the trust element. But until we touch, 
and we begin to test the idea of what it is to lean in. All of a sudden, I begin to decide that the in this is no longer a mutual relationship, but I'm going to seek my need. Lean, 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 coordinate hard. Lean on me. Trust me. Lean. And that's when you lean on me. Lean. Push, yes. <laughs> lean. I can't tell. <laughs> Until that's, we get to the place. That's the dance we're in, people. <laughs> Until we get to the place that we know that, uh, that I can lean on you and depend on you, and I am taking the risk to show you that you can lean on me and rest in me. Yes, so another part of, of this is uh, knowing our expectations. So expectations... No. Let's come back to that. I, I, you I were pointing I, I at me. I faked you out and made you think you were going you there. You did. I did. <laughs> So the third, the third uh, purpose that God designed sex for is pleasure. And as Rhonda mentioned earlier, this is exactly where our hedonistic culture has grabbed a hold of this idea and, and made it supreme. My pleasure, your pleasure, our pleasure, instead of the idea of what does this look like when we come together in union? What does this look like when we come together in the sense of the fulfillment of what it means to become one? to be an icon of this idea of the oneness of the Holy Trinity. Interesting, when, uh, when we look in 1 Corinthians 7 again, Paul is writing, and th this is one of those passages that uh, is often stepped over very, very quickly in the pulpit. Where do we teach sexuality in our church? Well, we talk about it in junior high a little bit. We talk about it in high school in the prohibitions in the young adults. We talk about it in premarital. But where is the next place that we really give any education to sexuality in our church ministry? Now, this is not the kind of thing that, that you are going to easily preach in the pulpit. But where is it going to come? How is it going to come? Through a marriage ministry? I hope so. I hope your church has a marriage ministry. Are we going to leave it to, to our, our congregation, to the sheep, to find it for themselves? Have you ever done a search of, of a podcast that deal with sexuality? The ones that your congregation are finding and picking up to and listening to? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As shepherds of the flock, our responsibility is to grab a hold of this area that is under such incredible Attack by the evil one. The Apostle Paul says this, A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and the wife to her husband. This idea of duty here is, is the idea of not obligation. One interpretation uh, or one translation uh, uses the idea of uh, uh, benevolent care. The, the, the idea is, is actually the idea of paying a debt. And it's not the idea that says, you owe me, but it is the idea that says, you have a, de a deficit that I can fill, that we can fill for each other as we relate to each other. And so as we relate to each other, we have this mutuality. I mean, you guys are New Testament scholars, many of you, and the idea that says uh, that the Apostle Paul would be writing this in the first century is incredibly wild. 
in a patriarchal culture. I mean, the, the, the uh, accusations of our patriarchal culture, which I've, I'm going to admit there's some, there some problems there, but the patriarchal culture of the first century is the idea that sex was all about me, the man, the husband. My needs need to be fulfilled. And Paul says, <laughs> no, you don't get it. It's, this is a mutual thing. This is the idea. This is where the idea of equality enters into the picture. This is the idea where the, the iconic relationship that you are representing, the image of God, three persons, individual persons of the Trinity, entering into this relationship together. This is where mutuality enters into the picture. And he goes on and he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. That idea that to, to be able to understand for me as a husband what female sexuality and female response is really all about. To understand that, not just from what the culture has said, not just from what I can pick up in the media, not just what I see in movies, not just what, what I've been told in the locker room, but to really find out and then find out individually the individual need of this woman that has to do with what pleases her, what timing is like, what, what seasons are like, what, what this means, what that means, and for the reciprocal of that to happen as well, ladies, to enter into that idea that says, I, I really want to understand, get a concept you know, some people have taken that idea that uh, for men, that uh, sex is like pizza. You know, that uh, when, it's, when it's okay, it's good. Pizza, when it is okay, is good. Pizza, when it's good, is good. And pizza, when it's very good, is good. For guys, it doesn't matter. It's always good. That's not true to understand that the deeper idea of what, what a man's needs are sexually. To understand that, the, as I shared earlier, that emotional need that we as men have in the sexuality. And to be a student of your own husband, to know what his needs are, to know what his cues are, his signals are. And then again, the last, uh, maybe uh, one of the most important parts about that is the idea of talking about sex between you. We seldom talk about sex. The idea that if sex is good, the last thing you want to do is talk about it. And if sex is not good, the last thing you want to do is talk about it. So the last thing that we do is talk about sex. And unfortunately, more often than not, we talk about sex in the middle of sex and not at a time where we are at that place of uh, some, some emotional security and safety. And we can have an open, honest conversation. We've produced a, a, a tool for you to use while you're up here as husband and wife. Uh, we call it... Uh, Becoming sexually fluent. So we've listed uh, 10 questions for you to talk through. And we would recommend that you not do all 10 in one setting. It is the idea that it's kind of progressive in its, in its involvement and in, in its risk level. But it's go for a walk, sit down for a, a milkshake, whatever it is, and say, hey, let's take one of those questions. And just open up to each other. Begin talking about the idea of sexuality, your sexuality, the sexuality God designed for you in your marriage. So one of the things we want to end with is um, we want to be aware of the risks that uh, present themselves to our, our sexual relationship. And uh, again, we're going to return to Song of Songs. Uh, 2.15 is kind of embedded in there. And it's the Shula light. Shula oh, no, no, I do want you to go here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm missing the, yeah, the cues Yeah, no, I'm here. sorry. I'm, I'm watching the clock, and you're doing great. Okay. <laughs> 
So he opened the door that we're going to have these questions for you, and I think they're really important um, because sometimes it's easier if it's on a piece of paper and you just initiate it. Then you, why did you bring that up, you know? Do you have an agenda behind this question? You know, that's kind of where we go when the other person especially talks about something this sensitive. So the questions are great that way. And it creates a framework for you to have conversations you need to have and maybe you used to have, like in the beginning, and then life has gotten really busy and complicated and things have gotten a little hard and then you stop talking about it. So um, three things to remember. You need to be aware of your expectations. So, so expectations get a bad rap a lot of times because we say, well, you just shouldn't have expectations. Impossible. <laughs> it's part of being created in the image of God. We have expectations. It's, uh, it's in that category of dreaming and, and faith and hope and uh, imagination and, and creativity. We cannot have not have expectations, but they need to be managed. And so three ways that we manage them. The first one is we need to be aware of them. And I think for me, I, I don't know about you other women, but for me, that was huge because I grew up in a very, very um, probably um, repressed home in some ways. I, I never talked about this with my dad. My dad met none of my boyfriends, met Kurt for the second time when he asked for my hand in marriage. We didn't have a lot of intimate conversations as a family. And so I, all I, the message I got was don't be sexy, don't think about sex, just, you know, don't go there. And so when I got married, I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to do that, think and be aware of that. So that might be something that needs to be explored. You haven't done that yet. And you've in entered into marriage, you've been married for a long time, but you haven't really explored what you need and what you like and what you need from your partner. So you have, only you can answer that. So he can't. Uh, the second one is it needs to be reasonable. And so I was trying to think of an example of that. So <laughs> I said, what about if I say, we are not going to make love three times before the sun rises anymore. <laughs> like we used to. Yeah, we're not going to do that. That's unreasonable for me to expect that from Kurt. Um, that's not going to happen. And then it you needs sure? to be <laughs> it, it needs to be spoken. Two? We need to speak it. And that's why these conversations are so important. Um, that we actually speak it to one another. And to hold somebody responsible for something they don't haven't heard from you is not fair. So you need to let that be known to your partner both ways. Okay, now I'm gonna go to Song of Songs. <laughs> 215. And it's a Shulamite woman at her wedding bed, and she's saying to her maids, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Do you know what she's saying? <laughs> foxes are our detriment to a vineyard. They, you know how a fox jumps around, and you know, they're really playful, and, and they jump on the vines, and it knocks the blossoms down. And she's talking about what are the things that the risks to our enjoying one another in this sexual relationship, this dance that God has given us. And so you need to identify what those are. You know, for us, um, 46 years of marriage, we've had a lot of situations that could have destroyed 
this um, be the beauty of a sexual relationship that lasts the years. And some of those were having to live apart because of a lost job and needing a, a kid to stay in, in the high school he was. Two years we lived apart and we commuted to see, see one another. We knew we were at risk. We had a target on our back. What were we going to do to keep the blossoms from being knocked off the vine? Um, another one was that, um, I can't think of the other one I was going to use right off the bat. Well, one of the, one of the ones I'm sure that she's thinking of is we had a chronically ill child yes. uh, with special education needs. Uh, which caused us to have to, uh, everything he learned at school, we had to repeat uh, when he got home and to work through that and to, and to have times during the night where we would wake him in the middle of the night uh, for medication two or three times. And, and in the midst of that, figuring out uh, how do we maintain the intimacy yes. between us. The other one I was thinking of is Kurt had a secretary at one time uh, at the church that was going through a very difficult uh, divorce, and um, she was spending a lot of time with my husband, and um, and she saw what a great man he was, and that's not her experience, and I could see even from a distance that there was some kind of bond that she was building towards him, and so we needed to take action, not have her lose her job, uh, just to protect her because she was in a very vulnerable place. We were in a vulnerable place, and we needed to protect ourselves, so be aware of what are the foxes that are in the vineyard. And, and address them. Don't let them go because they will knock the blossoms off of your beautiful vineyard. In the busy world in which we live, our love life can disappear in a flood of commitments, work, and just plain exhaustion. Even sex can become a, nothing but a quickie or non-existent. As a result, it can become boring, no more than a duty, not the joy it was intended to be question we end is uh, for your church. Are you hoping to give your church a biblical, marital-centric view of sexuality? And maybe more important this, I almost said weekend, in this conference, is the question, are you making time for your sex life? I would have loved it last night when, uh, when all the options for recreation, including hatchets and rope course and naps, and if the idea that uh, Jason has just said, what about a little bit of afternoon delight? <laughs> and I'm not thinking what you're thinking. All I'm thinking about is beginning to talk openly and honestly about your sexual relationship. Just taking a sheet of paper, one question, and just saying, hey, listen, wouldn't it be great if we just opened the door to talking freely and openly about our sexual relationship by conversation walking around the lake? One simple question. Well, I'll go back up on that and I'll say afternoon delight. Whatever you were thinking, I think it's a great idea as well. Well, probably necessary that we pray at this point. <laughs> Father God, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, God of love, God of relationship, God of creation, the one who designed us as holistic individuals in which our sexuality plays an important part, but not an exclusive part. Be our guide. Lead us into truth and lead us into unity. 
maybe the two greatest encouragements of all of Scripture, that we might be led into truth and oneness. Pray that for these couples, and we pray that for the churches they represent. In Jesus' name, amen.